The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm superstar Frank Morano. Superstar when it comes to the world of radio and casino gambling. That's how I got that superstar status. You know, every so often some people will ask me, oh, how, why do you call yourself superstar? Well, I'm not calling myself superstar. Bally's gave me that superstar status because of my prodigious gambling losses. So I'm not going to waste that superstar status. And that entitles me to things like uh, free parking. But in any event, um, I've always considered myself a decent gift giver. Uh, Gnome Layden, who's still waiting for a reciprocal gift from the uh, bottle of of champagne that he gave me on Friday, would beg to differ. But I always try to be a thoughtful gift giver. And what I do is I try to pay attention to what people say. The whole year round. And I keep a folder in my phone of gifts that would be appropriate for someone, right? So somebody mentions a gift and I'll I'll write it down. I'll say, and then hopefully I can remember enough of what's behind this gift idea. So my um, one time my uh, sister-in-law, Sharon, said she wanted an old lady neck fan. So I put that on. I don't even know what how I would go about buying an old lady neck fan. So I put that on her list. Um, you know, sometimes things will occur to me that somebody might, you know, that somebody might want. And I write them down. It's kind of my thing. So I um, try to give gifts that are appropriate to people, but sometimes you don't always hit a home run. And I'm sure you've gotten gifts that you haven't been crazy about. So what do you do with a gift that you just don't want? Maybe it's not your size. Maybe it's not your style. Maybe you don't like it. Maybe you realize you're never going to use it. Maybe your wife is claiming you don't have room for it. What do you do with an unwanted gift? Because some people may say that, you know, it's kind of a lame question. You know what you do with it. You go and return it or trade it in for something that you don't like that you want. I don't think that's the only option. For starters, obviously you can re-gift it. I'm a big re-gifter. I make no bones about the fact that I re-gift with the best of them. I uh, I like to re-gift. Obviously you can donate them, especially if it's uh, something that is easily translatable, if it's not something personalized, you can donate it to somebody that would probably be happy to have it, a, a charity or somebody less fortunate. Or you can you could sell it, go on eBay, sell it for pennies or something along those lines. Or if it's somebody whose feelings you don't want to hurt and they're going to come over and see what you've done with their gift, maybe you hold on to it. I'm curious if there have been instances of you receiving a gift you didn't want for whatever reason and what you did or what you routinely do with that gift. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Tell me what you think. Um, Tony, where are you on uh, getting an unwanted gift? What do you do with it? It depends on, on what it is. Um, I, I, 
I show my gratitude to the person, even Naturally, though even right. though if I don't like it. But as respect for them, you know, since they thought about me, I will keep the gift. And like, and every time I see that person, especially if it's a like some clothes, I w- I would wear it. Oh, you me. would. Yeah. So you'd w- go actually go to the trouble of wearing clothes yeah, that you don't like. Yeah, especially if I know I'm going to see the person. Interesting. Interesting. I learned that from my mother. I remember it was like in the fifth grade we were going to visit um um one of my great aunt. And uncle, and she said, "Wear the sweater that your aunt um, gave you for Christmas. Let, 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 you know, just show some type of you know gratitude." And that's what I did. And she was happy when I walked. I was like, "Oh, I see you like the sweater I, uh, I gave you for Christmas." Like, yeah, yeah. Well, no, okay. I think that's very nice. It's very thoughtful. I um, I'm trying to think. I'm sure I have done that. I don't routinely do that. Uh, wear clothing that uh, somebody's given me that I wouldn't or that I don't like. Elias, what about you? You ever get a gift that you didn't want? Yeah, I'm not a big sock guy and I just I always end up with them every year. And, and then what do you do with them? You return them, you regift them, you no, they they sit in the drawer just, see, as I look at them every day. That's what I'm trying to avoid with having this discussion. And I'm sure there is a better solution. 800-848-9222 because as Tony says, you don't want to hurt people's feelings. Somebody goes out of their way to give you something, you don't want to hurt their feelings, right? Uh, but if it's something that you don't want and you don't want to use, you don't want to keep, should you be forced to suffer as young Tony was when he was wearing the uh, the sweater that his aunt gave him, which he was not only uh, offended by in terms of his fashion sense, but uh, horribly allergic to because of the mohair in which it was made, or should you just have stockpiles of socks, which I guess they call a sock pile, as Elias is dealing with. My view is, I, and I don't like returning things because I don't like the chore involved. I already, I got my wife one of the wrong things that, uh, for, for her, I have to return one of her things. That's mostly via mail. And then I have to get a new gift for this um, woman whose name I misspelled, Elena. Which, that's on me. I'll take care of that. But I don't like the chore of going to the store, returning it, getting um, – they don't give you cash usually. They'll give you store credit. Oh, store credit for a store I don't want to shop in. That's great. Uh, let me keep track of the store credit and try to remember to come back here if I ever need anything. Okay. I um, I like the regifting. Uh, I will regift till the cows come home. The, even if it's stuff that I like. Because I remember one time someone gave me a really nice box of cigars. Very thoughtful gift. But it just, I was trying not to keep too many cigars in the house because what happens is when I have a lot of cigars in the house, I end up smoking more. And I was trying not to smoke that many of them. And I had to get someone else a very nice gift. And these cigars fit the bill. I'm a regifter. I regifted that cigars, that, that box of cigars. And you know what? That person really appreciated it. That I gave it to, that I gave them to. Now, the worst gift has that you can give around Christmas is historically the fruitcake. And uh, they say, actually, there's only been one fruitcake that has ever been made. And it just gets constantly re-gifted and re-gifted. No one ever eats it. You just give it away to someone else. But... I, um, I've actually had it on good authority that there are actually multiple fruitcakes. It's not just one. And do you know that there was a fruitcake that was discovered in a 1910 uh, – this is not – this sounds like a joke, but it's not – a 1910 Antarctic expedition. Um, and this fruitcake is apparently still edible, and it was quite old at the time, the fruitcake. So this was in Scientific American, and they found that because of the alcohol in the fruitcake, you can basically keep it forever. The fruitcake that they discovered in this expedition in Antarctica in 1910, (coughs) excuse me, was 106 years old, and they say it was still edible. It was 160 years old. 113 years ago, and it was still edible in 1910. They say it's still still, still edible. The traditional Christmas treat is thousands of years old as a, con- as a concept. There are references to it in Roman texts made with raisins, honey, 
pomegranate seeds and wine, but it can also be decades or centuries old in actual fact. One Michigan family treasures a 140-year-old fruitcake, again, not a joke, as uh, as an heirloom. The alcohol used in their preparation, the lack of moisture, and the high sugar levels make fruitcake inhospitable to microbes. Hence their longevity. You could theoretically still eat these century-old fruitcakes without harm. That's what Scientific American says. So I'm not going to – look, I'm not a big believer in expiration dates, but even I'm not going to do that one. You know what I think the worst gift that you can give someone is? I think it's even worse than a fruitcake, and you will never, ever get this from me, is a gift card. I think a gift card is a terrible gift. If you're going to actually give someone a gift card, what I would, if you're going to give it to me, what I'd rather you do, just give me the cash. Give me the cash. What you do with a gift card is it's just like money. It's like you're giving cash. It's just as impersonal as cash, except it's less useful. Okay, because here's what happens. Sometimes people think they're being thoughtful and they'll say, all right, well, I'm, you know, I know Frank likes XYZ restaurant. I'm going to get him a gift card to XYZ restaurant. Get him a $100 gift card. So one of three things will happen. One, I will lose the gift card. That's very common. And that person has wasted their money. And I would have been out the money that they would have just given me. Maybe it's one of four things that happen. Two, it sits in my wallet forever. It's taking up space in my already bloated wallet. Three, okay. I know I have a gift card to XYZ restaurant. So I make a plan to go to XYZ restaurant. And let's say I have a $100 gift card on it. Dinner will be $94. Oh, here's your remaining balance back of $6 on this gift card. So now I'm carrying around this gift card forever until I go there again. And I'm now going to make a special trip just to go there to spend the $6 on here. Or you'll go there and the meal that I wouldn't have ended up getting is more than the gift card value. I think it's an awful, awful gift for on every level. And I would never get someone a gift card. So, um, but I'm in the minority because gift cards are a very popular Stocking stuffer. Do you know how much Americans are expected to spend on gift cards this holiday season? Take a guess. $30 billion. $30 billion with a B. Dollars. And that's according to the National Retail Federation. And the most popular type of gift card? Restaurant gift cards. Now, most of these gift cards are redeemed. They say about 70% of gift cards are used within six months. Now, that's okay. shows people using them. But what does that mean? With $30 billion worth of gift cards sold, if only 70% of them are being used, that means many cards, tens of billions of dollars worth, wind up forgotten, lost, or otherwise unused. And that's when the life of a gift card gets a little more complicated. Because there are expiration dates, there are inactivity fees, and these vary from state by state. After clothing, gift cards will be the most popular present this holiday season. Half of Americans plan to give them, but many of them just remain unspent. They're lost, they're forgotten. Recipients hang on to them for a special occasion. And they found, the uh, consumer website Bankrate found that 47% of U.S. adults had at least one unspent gift card or voucher with an average value of $187. That's a total of $23 billion. Can you imagine? That's $23 billion that's essentially wasted. So, And that's why the, the vendors love them. The vendors that sell these gift cards love it. They're hoping you'll buy it, and the person you give to gives it to never comes in to redeems it or redeem it because they lost it, or because they just get busy, or they don't read the fine print and see you have to use it within a year, and they try to come in in a year and a day. So, under a federal law that went into effect in 2010, a gift card cannot expire for five years from the time it was purchased. 
So that's that's nice. But those inactivity fees do get to you. They do. They do get you. This is why I don't like these gift cards. All right. What do you do with a gift that you don't want? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Let's begin with uh, former listener of the week, Neil in Baltimore. Hello, Neil. Well, good morning, Frank, and welcome back. I'm so glad you're on the air tonight because I'm doing about an hour and a half trip tonight. So Wonderful. Where are you headed? Very great. Yeah, I mean, I was only uh, off for from, one day, Neil, in fairness. Yeah. Oh, Oh. really? Okay. Yeah, from Baltimore up to uh, Dover, Delaware. Okay, well, good. Have a good trip. Thank you. Um, little twist. My mother used to make uh, this delicious bread at Christmas, and it would be gobbled up in minutes. And I think when I was in my teens, late teens, I called her and said, what was that that you used to make? And it was a German stolen. And so I've been making it for about 40 years, and it's the greatest gift I could ever give to anyone, the labor that goes into it and the delicious taste that it gives everybody. And I've had people say, quit your job and make it full time because it's so good. Wow. But the other thing that I thought of, too, is I have two daughters. And as they were growing up, I got gifts and invariably they would reject them or didn't want them. And I found that it did a lot of good to give, you know, to the poor and somebody that I knew that was in need of something or their children were in need of something. So that was my first thought on the uh, on the topic tonight. So you're of the belief that if you get a gift that you don't want or if someone else does, you should give it away to somebody that's that doesn't have the same advantages that you do. That's in need, yes. I yeah. believe that to be firm, yeah. Yeah, I think that's very noble, Neil. I, I think that's great. Um, now, again, I'm not getting rid of my podium. I love my podium. But let's say let's say my wife was able to eventually win the battle of getting me to get rid of my podium. I'm not sure what less fortunate person I would give my podium to. Would I go to a, a soup kitchen and find somebody that looks like they like to stand on a soapbox and, and chat and say, hey, you, you look like you could do some press conferences. You want this podium? Now, again, I'm keeping this podium, but that's why I think giving a gift away to the less fortunate, it makes sense and it's very noble but sometimes when you get into the specifics and the specific logistics, yeah, maybe it makes a little less sense. Podium example, I think, is one. And, you know, for instance, my friends Bill and Elena that I gave the tea box to that I misspelled Elena on, where are they? who are they going to give that to? A personalized Bill and Elena with Elena misspelled tea box. They have to try to befriend another couple named Bill and Alana and then give it to them. Lisa is in Connecticut. I hope you had a nice Christmas, Lisa. Yes, you too. Um, glad that you're back. And, um, yeah, you know, sometimes with this whole situation with the gifts that you don't like, yeah, I, I tend to actually give it to Goodwill or, or maybe re-gift, like you said. Or sometimes I just keep it and then they're, they're stuck in a drawer somewhere, so. <laughs> You know, and you collect items and you're like, oh, it's just a memory of the past. <laughs> and you don't know what to do with it. And you just collect stuff, right? Yeah, uh, um, exactly. Touch upon the fruitcake thing. Mm. Um, that's a really interesting thing. So maybe we should all start making fruitcakes for, uh, for the future in case <laughs> something happens. Then we all know that at least we have fruitcake. Exactly. Because it'll be sustainable. Uh, well, Lisa, I think if you just put out there that you want a fruitcake, I'm sure someone's happy to get rid of theirs. They'll they'll happily give you theirs. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> All right, Lisa, thank you for that. Appreciate it. Good thought. 800-848-9222. Oh, let me tell you what's coming up in about uh, six minutes. We're going to talk with uh, a very interesting young man by the name of Sahaj Sharda. He's joining us live from India. He is an anti-monopoly activist. He's an Ivy League law student, and he is a critic of college pricing. Now, look, I remember what it was like to try and pay for college and graduate school. I um, I didn't finish graduate school, but I, you know, I started graduate school. I had a lot of help for as an undergrad from my parents and from uh, my grandfather, who had left me a little bit of money. But it was still it was still difficult. Graduate school. I borrowed money that it took me years 
to pay off. And ultimately, I borrowed a ton of money, took me years to pay off, and didn't even fin- complete the degree that I had started. But as a parent, I'm looking at college pricing through a whole new lens these days, and I just look at what tuition is, what room and board is, what the cost of books is. I think, what a ripoff. And almost every year, it seems like it goes up and up and up. So you just kind of shrug and you think, wow, what can be done about it? Sahaj Sharda is actually someone that's trying to do something about it. We'll find out exactly what coming up in about uh, five minutes. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Peter, who's calling from Toronto. Hi, Peter. Hi, and happy holidays to you guys. Thanks, you too. I'm going to go back to the Bobby Kennedy assassination. It happened in uh, Watts, California, L.A. And uh, after Sirhan, Sirhan killed him, a football player, Roosevelt Greer, disarmed Sirhan, Sirhan, took the gun off him, put the clamps on his wrist, broke his wrist, and took the gun in his pocket. There were There were no other bodyguards protecting Bobby Kennedy that night. Yeah, I mean, I think that caller was incorrect. I mean, I know he was incorrect because the Secret Service was not protecting him and they made some changes because of his yeah. assassination. Yeah, no, there definitely were no uh, Secret Service. B. Rosie brought him to uh, L.A. Watts area. It was a black area in L.A. And uh, he was, you know, sponsored him in, took him through. And after it happened, it had a... You know, he was playing for the Rams at the time with the fearsome foursome. They had a big uh, defensive line, it was called, and these guys were performing in Las Vegas. They were had a dance crew, and that's where I got to meet him. I was in production oh. uh, assistant in Vegas, and he told me the story. And uh, he became a minister afterwards. It uh, shook him up that bad, and it was quite a, you know, could look at the guy's hands i could just picture you know a guy breaking his wrist so he couldn't squeeze another shot off so it was, oh yeah. i i can imagine yeah no he's still yeah. going strong at uh 91 years old uh these days thank you peter 800-848-9222 bill is in baltimore listening on wcbm hi bill hello how are you merry christmas merry christmas to you bill thanks i uh wanted to say i think the probably one of the uh cheapest gets to get somebody meeting not just price wise but it shows you really what they think of you is a chia pet the pottery that grows you don't like the chia pet no i just think the it shows the person is a tight wad that buys something like that for you because it didn't take very much thought unless you're a plant buff then it's another story but if i got something like that i'd take it as an insult because it shows that they don't want to spend any money i I, I mean somebody close to you i mean look it's 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 right i mean it's twenty dollars right bill so i mean you could spend twenty dollars like let's say you're in an office secret santa you know we're not talking about something you'd get a spouse or a parent or a child um but if you're if you're going to get a twenty dollar gift from someone I think a Chia Pet is actually not the worst gift. You know why? Because a lot of the Chia Pets that are out now are very creative. Like, uh, I have a friend, Miranda. She loves the Golden Girls. Watches the Golden Girls every day. They have a Golden Girls Chia Pet, which I think is really cool. So I think it would be really cool. I have another friend, loves Bob Ross. You could get a Bob Ross Chia Pet. Uh, they make an Obama Chia Pet. If someone's a, a supporter of Obama, I'm sure they make a Trump Chia Pet. You know, I, I think... Here's- yeah. Here's one. Here's one that I think is a really horrible. I would probably take it, and uh, you'd be wearing it for a hat if you said you got me a Peloton. A Peloton. That's pretty expensive. Well, what I'm saying is, if you wouldn't you love to get something like that for your wife or something like? Oh my God, you might as well just plan on uh, uh, following. You might as well be ready to pay alimony payments. Well, I mean, there was this was a big controversy four years ago when Peloton did that commercial of a guy uh, getting the uh, Peloton for his wife. And a lot of people basically said what you just said. Uh, and thank you, Bill. Look, I, I, I know that's the cliche that you're not supposed to get your spouse a piece of exercise equipment. What if they like to exercise? Right. I mean, I um I would like to I would love to have more exercise equipment. I'm always putting that on my my gift list. 
And my wife always says, and I guess she's right, well, when you get on the, when you start using the stationary bike that we already have a bit more than you do, then maybe we could talk about getting you something else rather than having it be an expensive uh, clothing hanger. I, um, you know, my, uh, my sister-in-law, she's Orthodox Jewish. I have eight siblings-in-law. And, you know, it's a different lifestyle uh, than the one that I lead. Nothing wrong with it. It's just different. And her husband, Simka, last year, for, I guess it was Hanukkah, maybe her birthday, got her a vacuum cleaner as a gift. Now, my sister-in-law did not grow up in a Hasidic community, but now she's part of a Hasidic community. So she still has a lot of conventional Gentile ways of thinking about things. And she was outraged. Outraged, She said to her husband, how can you get me a vacuum cleaner? That's the worst gift you can get anybody. And, Sim, you know, Simka said, well, look, you're always saying how you the vacuum cleaner that you have doesn't work and doesn't do the job. This is a nice new vacuum cleaner. She said, no, no, but that's something you get me on a regular day, not for whatever the holiday was, a birthday or a Christmas. I get it, right? I mean, I guess these cliches are cliches for a reason. But I don't subscribe to them. I think if you can use something and you can get something that people will use and enjoy, whether it's $20 or whether it's 400 bucks, I think it's really is. I know it's a cliche, but I think it's the thought that counts. I think a vacuum cleaner, a Peloton, I think that can be a nice gift if that's what that person wants. Now, look, if you're doing it to be a nudge, if you're doing it to be a scutch, if you're doing it because you're trying to tell your your wife she doesn't clean up enough or you're trying to tell your husband that he's that he's fat, then that's obviously different. But if you're doing it because you're legitimately trying to be thoughtful, I, I don't subscribe to those those cliches about what the bad gifts are. I don't. All right. We're going to talk about college. That is the gift that keeps on giving if you have student loans. Am I right? We'll get into it with uh, an anti-monopoly activist who has spent the last few years exploding the college cartel. We'll get into it with Sahaj Sharda straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. You know, I'd love to see the OJs perform at the Super Bowl one year, the halftime show. I think that'd be so much fun. I love the OJs. In any event, uh, there are a lot of conversations going on in America right now, meaning this week, because of the nature of holidays 
and the nature of people being back from school. A couple of a lot of things happening. You have a lot of kids, young people, freshmen, sophomores in college that are back home for the Christmas holiday. And a lot of them are having their parents foot the bill for a very expensive university education. And the parents are basically asking the student, how's it going? And a lot of students are thinking, well, wait a minute. Uh, I really can't tell the truth to my parents about how much money I'm actually wasting of theirs because I'm spending a lot of time partying and goofing off instead of studying philosophy. That's one set of conversations that's going on. Then you have another set of conversations where teenagers, 16 years old, 17 years old, they're seeing a group of relatives for Christmas and New Year's or whatever holidays that are appropriate for your religious beliefs are. And they're seeing this group of relatives that they only see once a year. And Cousin Kathy or Cousin Howie will say to them, well, hey, Sammy, where are you thinking about going to college? And that is the worst question in the world for a teenager because they're already under enough pressure. And so now they have to, uh, in order to uh, essentially please someone that they're seeing once a year, they have to come up with a college or university name that's recognizable enough that this person gives them the reaction of, oh, that's a good school, and then moves on. That's a lot of pressure for a a young person. And yet these are the conversations that are going on all over the country right now. And so much of these conversations have to do with the price, the price of college tuition, the price of room and board, the price of books, and what you get for that Price. Now, I went to New York University, uh, took a lot of classes at Tisch, which is the film school there. And every single person I knew that graduated from Tisch, the uh, prestigious NYU film school, said to me the same thing, which is they had a decent experience there. But if they just took the amount of money that they spent on their film school tuition and instead made a movie on their own, they not only would have learned a lot more about filmmaking, but they would have been much farther along in their careers than they were when they graduated from film school. And I'm sure that can be said of a number of other collegiate areas of study as well. Someone who has been very vocal on this is Sahaj Sharda. He's an anti-monopoly activist, an Ivy League law student, a college pricing critic, and the author of The College Cartel. He's uh, kind enough to join us now live from India, where it's actually a decent time of day. Sahaj, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Hey, Frank. Thanks so much for having me on, and uh, fantastic intro. I think you framed all of the issues exactly correctly. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Hey, what sparked your activism on this? When did you become uh, somebody that was speaking out on the price of college? Yeah, so, you know, it's actually really funny because, um, you know, the last couple of holiday seasons, uh, I feel like every time I've gone back, there, there's been a new scandal about either the elite colleges or colleges in general that's always, you know, somehow – present at the dinner table. And so a couple of years ago, the really big one was the Varsity Blues scandal, where a lot of famous celebrities, kids, um, and other, you know, really wealthy people were essentially using an admissions consultant named Rick Singer to bribe the admissions offices at a, at a wide variety of elite colleges from USC to Georgetown, where I went. Um, and, you know, the, the way I sort of like started studying what went wrong with their colleges is when I was, I think, a, a junior or senior at Georgetown, the Varsity Blues scandal erupted across the front pages um, of all the major newspapers. And one of the people who was caught up in this scandal was actually a classmate of mine. Now, this wasn't someone I knew super well, but obviously when something like that happens in, in a close proximity like campus, you, know, you hear all sorts of things. And I wanted to take a step back and really think about, well, what is going on that wealthy people will risk going to jail, will spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, sometimes millions of dollars, 
um, in order to get their kids into these schools. Mm. Like, what is it about the juice that's worth this amount of squeeze? And why has the market become so dysfunctional? You didn't see this frequency of scandal in the past. You certainly didn't see it in the in the 50s or 60s or 70s or 80s. This is somehow a more modern phenomenon starting in the late 80s, 90s, 2000s, and certainly since, where there's just been this fever pitch about getting into those very prestigious schools, I think that you mentioned, that will, uh, that will placate you know, your aunt or uncle who will, who will think, oh, that's a really nice school. And so there's been this desperate, desperate um, drive to get into these few very prestigious colleges that has somehow intensified in the last few years. And so I wanted to take a step back and really study what happened. Why did that happen? And, you know, as I started to study that more and more, what I realized is this story and the college debt story, the college pricing story are all really interconnected. It's all just really one story, which is as the demand for these schools went up and as the supply was kept constrained um, through what I call cartel tactics, you know, what ended up happening is all of this dysfunction, which is you had more and more competition among students, more and more pressure amongst young people, and increasingly higher and higher tuition fees that have just become unsustainable and frankly unaffordable for the vast majority of Americans. Really, that's so interesting. So in your book, you chronicle how between 1994 and 2021, the University of Pennsylvania's endowment, the cash that the college is essentially sitting on, it increased from $1.5 billion to $20.5 billion. That's uh, not from tuition. That's from donations, investments, whatever else they have. That's a growth of 1,301% in less than 30 years. Over that same period, Cornell's endowment grew by 1,014%. Brown's endowment grew by 1,035%. Duke's endowment grew by 1,717%. Now, a lot of folks will see all the cash that these colleges and universities have and think, wait a minute, why do they need to keep raising prices? Why not simply draw down on that endowment? So you alluded to cartel-like tactics Break this down for us, uh, you know, Sahaj. Explain to us why college tuition has gone up so precipitously. doesn't seem to matter whether it's a recession or boom times for the economy. It seems to only go in one direction while the endowments are also going up. So, so this is precisely the right question. I think it is actually a paradox that you have to grapple with for a second because on the one hand, the colleges say that they're nonprofits, they're charities, they're committed to an educational mission. And, you know, they use all sorts of language to lead you to this conclusion. They say things like financial aid instead of price discounting um, you know, or price discrimination. And then they use these types of words like endowments and, um, you know, and they, and they are legally registered as not-for-profit entities. And so, you know, whatever you donate to them is tax deductible. And for all of these reasons, I think, you know, Traditionally, American society has taken the view that these are charitable institutions, or at least they're institutions that are imbued with a higher purpose. And I think increasingly, when you really study what's happened at these campuses, exactly what you said, the endowments ballooning, and yet at the same time, prices getting more and more and more extreme across the board. It's not just one or two schools. It's all of them and all the time. It's been a secular trend for the last 20, 30 years. When you look at all of that together, which is that they have more money and so therefore should be able to afford to lower prices more than ever before, and yet prices are higher than ever before, you can only walk away with one conclusion, which is that these aren't necessarily institutions that are imbued with that higher purpose. Instead, they're merely commercial entities. And you know the, the, the form of commerciality that they exhibit is a little bit different because they are organized as not-for-profits, but... Nonetheless, there are deeply commercial motives that are that are at the heart and that are the beating heart of these secular trends of rising prices over time. And, you know, and, and I think that just that unlock, that that sort of mental leap is how you can then think about how we solve this problem, which has been, you know, a place where we've gotten stuck for so many years. Tell me why you and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with. Uh, Sahaj Sharda, his book is the the college cartel. Tell me why you refer to it as a 
cartel. A lot of people would say, even if your uh, analysis is correct, that they these guys just act like commercial businesses rather than nonprofits, that these are the prices that people are willing to pay for a, a degree yeah. from a place like Brown or Duke or uh, University of Pennsylvania or Harvard. What are they doing that is cartel-like? So if you think about like the paradigmatic cartels that you're probably familiar with, things like OPEC, which is you know the the oil cartel, or you know the drug cartels um, that that are so problematic in our societies, you know all of them have essentially a very similar logic, which is they operate in markets with inelastic demand. And I know I'm using some jargon. Let me explain what that means. What that essentially means is that if the price goes up a little bit. Very few people make the decision not to buy. Instead, they kind of grumble, but they make the purchase anyway. So if you think about, you know, filling a tank of gas, you know, especially before electric vehicles, if the price of gas went up, yeah, it would kind of suck, but you would still make that purchase because you have to get to work. Um, and, you know, what, what increasingly has happened is that the college degree has exhibited these tendencies. There's been a very inelastic demand, which is that no matter how much is charged, whether it's because of subsidies or student loans, or, or other types of, of, of federal guarantees, you know, people have been willing to pay. It. And so it's been this market with very inelastic demand. Now, what about the supply side? Now, this is where the cartels really figure out how to take maximal advantage of this type of demand. And so what traditionally they do, what OPEC does or what the drug cartels do, is they try to limit supply as much as possible. Because what happens then is that there's less competition between the suppliers of the goods much more competition for the people who demand the good to compete for what limited allocation exists. And so, you know, you can think about this in the oil market um, when we've had these oil crises or price spikes and people are, you know, sort of rationing oil um, or, or, or carpooling more, things like this. They're having to compete more for that product. On, on the other hand, in colleges, I think it's much more clear. You have these schools that are rejecting 97 98% of students, you know, Harvard, Stanford, Yale, um, and it's getting so extreme that sometimes these schools don't even publish their acceptance rate anymore. And so you can clearly see that there's a massive amount of demand. It's quite inelastic, the price. And what the schools are doing is instead of growing enrollments, instead of, you know, if you're Harvard and say you have $56 billion in your endowment, instead of building a Harvard two or a Harvard three and trying to steal all of Yale students and all of Princeton students, the schools have more or less stagnated their enrollment growth, um, whereby essentially enrollments have been flat since, since the 1980s, while demand has absolutely tremendously spiked. And, if, you know, there's economic analyses where if the schools were – it's not about student quality because if the students were – if the schools are maintaining student quality since the 1990s, their enrollments would have tripled or doubled, something mm. in that order of magnitude. And instead, we've seen it be completely flat while prices have doubled or tripled. And so I think this is the fundamental story, which is the schools have somehow figured out a way that all of them, each and every single one that's within this sort of prestigious band, has figured out a way – to maintain their competitive balance as not expanding, which is against what the laws of economics would tell you, which is that you know the, the laws of capitalism are if the price of something goes up, then people should rush into that market to produce more of it. That's how the market's supposed to work. That's not what's happening here. And so there's something that's actually very anti-market that's happening, and it's this cartel structure that the schools have structured. I'm happy to talk more about the mechanics of how that works if you'd like. Well, you know, I'm also interested in... What can be done about this prospectively? What can people do? What are you trying to do to kind of break up this college cartel? So, so I think you know there, there's two types of responses that I think are, are super important and I think are actually possible. And so one is on the demand side, which is, you know, I think students need to think more deeply about why exactly do I want to go to these schools? Is it just to... Uh, impress my aunt or uncle, like I think you alluded to right. at the beginning. Is it to actually signal some sort of base competence? Is it because I don't have a better plan or I don't know what I'm actually interested in? I mean, the point you made about you know the Tisch students who may or may not have been better off just taking that money and trying to make their own movie, I think is a, is a point well taken. Um, but unfortunately, there, there are limits to that type of demand substitution, which is that um, you know, essentially, if you want to be a doctor or you want to be a lawyer, if you want to be in one of these super credentialed um, professions, then essentially you have to go through a very specific set of institutions in order to achieve those goals. 
Um, you know, you have these credentialing mechanisms that basically exclude anyone who doesn't do that. And so I think for people who want to work in, uh, you know, more fluid parts of the economy, whether they want to be creators um, in digital media, whether they want to do other types of things that are maybe more on the frontier, you know, that type of demand substitution might be a good idea. If you, if you know that that's what you want to do, maybe you don't need to go to one of these prestigious colleges. But for others, I think there is going to be a tremendous amount of lock-in that continues to exist, which brings us to the supply side. And I think, you know, there are a lot of things that are just common-sense bipartisan policies that can be done here that are going to be tremendously popular no matter which party you're in. So you mentioned how wealthy the endowments have gotten. Um, you know, the, the Trump administration, to, to President Trump's credit, uh, tried to install an endowment tax on the universities that only kicked in if you had an endowment per student that was very, very large. And so one way in which a university could escape paying that endowment tax is by just enrolling more students. And because in that sense, your, your endowment per student criteria would actually lower below the threshold and you could avoid paying the tax. And so that would be sort of an output expansionary type of tax the issue with the with the Trump endowment tax was that it was very, very small. It was, I think, like 1.7% on all endowment gains. So if an endowment made a dollar, they only paid a, a penny or two pennies out of that dollar um, in taxes, which is you know not enough to meaningfully deter uh, the very lucrative racket they have going on by limiting output, by limiting the number of seats, by limiting the number of students that they teach. I think if we ratcheted up that rate, the market would naturally resolve. The cartel would break under this type of, uh, you know, tax pressure. Um, other things we can do is, and things I, I've advocated in the past is, you know, for the antitrust authorities, for people at the FTC, like Chairwoman Lena Khan, for people at the DOJ, like uh, Mr. Jonathan Cantor, to investigate these schools and figure out how exactly hmm. they're colluding to keep each from expanding. And you know, I think there's been a tremendous amount of reporting in recent weeks and months. Uh, that's pointing to some sort of weird relationship that the elite universities have with U.S. News and World Report, the major college uh -huh. ranking system. Um, and so the argument I make in my book, actually, is that the way that they've been able to enforce this scarcity is by having U.S. News and World Report essentially, you know, de-rank anyone who tries to expand to it. <laughs> and by doing that, essentially, uh, they've, they've structured this cartel where if you it's in your best interest if you want to be ranked well, which is why students want to go in the first place, to not expand the number of seats that you have. And so I think you know this type of relationship could deeply be investigated. I think there would be a very strong antitrust yeah. that no, you could find. I, I, including with these I agree with you. I, I think this is uh, really uh, terrific. I hope people check out your website and uh, check out the book. Uh, the book is called The College Cartel. Sahaj, I got to run, uh, but hopefully we can chat again. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. People can check out his website, breakthecartel.com, breakthecartel.com. Comments, questions, thoughts, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Side at midnight with Frank Morano. Where it began, 
I can't begin to know him But then I know it's growing strong Wasn't the spring And spring became the summer Who'd have believed you'd come along Hand Touching hands Reaching out The great Neil Diamond Touching me Singing Sweet Caroline This is, uh, again, a birthday bumper music selection from my cousin Kathy Logan. Hopefully she is having a great birthday. Only a couple hours into her birthday. All right. Hey, uh, before this hour leaves us, let me name this week's Listener of the Week. This will be our final one of the year, and then our jury of all these listeners of the week, which have included David, Neil, Ellen, Jeff, Joe, Igor, Brandon, Anonymous, Lisa, Neil, Frankie, Mike, David, and Rick, will get to be the jury in our year-end awards. If you have suggestions for different award categories, email me because I've got some good stuff and these are going to be the people that decide who wins each category. But our Listener of the Week, this is somebody that uh, could be the Listener of the Week each week and um, he is a great guy, been a very loyal listener for a long time. He has called in occasionally, always with a very interesting question during Ask Frank Anything. This week's Listener of the Week is Mike in New Rochelle. Uh, Mike in New Rochelle, who actually came here during the summer, gave me a thumb drive of basically a modern-day mixtape. Really cool, not only songs and music, but sounds and sounders and uh, vintage radio stuff. I listened to this sound, uh, this thumb drive, all the way to Cape May. And then, on a very emotional car ride back, because my wife had just found out that her cat needed to be put to sleep, she didn't want to speak, we listened to it the whole way back. And uh, he is there, thick and thin, whenever I say I need help finding a movie, or this or that, Mike in New Rochelle is there for us. So, uh, Mike, congratulations. If you email me, uh, you get to choose tomorrow's bumper music. Email me some song selections, and we'll try and play as many as we can. You know, I was looking at the most listened to segments that we've done this year. There were some surprises. I'll share them with you after the top of the hour, and uh, we'll take your calls as well. Until next hour, your influence counts. Use it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer.